This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you Shopify is a global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, hey Marge, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Running a growing business means getting the insights you need wherever you are. With Shopify's single dashboard, you can manage orders, shipping, and payments from anywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash ifanboy, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash ifanboy now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash ifanboy. This is iFanboy Pick of the Week number 746 brought to you by iFanboy listeners just like you. Washing your hands, keeping your distance, enjoying your comics, doing what you can, being good people. I could go on. Let's do the show. Well, hello. Hello. Welcome to. <laughs> hello. Hello. Hello, John. Hi- <laughs> hello, John. Welcome to Life and Pick of the Week, John. Episode 746. No, John. <laughs> I'm John Flanagan, <laughs> and with me is Dr. Ian Malcolm. Hey, hello, hello, uh, hello. Uh, hello. Uh, uh, the 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 uh, this is the uh, the um, uh, the podcast. You, oh, I'm, I'm making faces, and I can't. The faces don't translate. Obviously, yeah. it's Connor Kilpatrick. You probably know that. Hello. Otherwise, you're like, wow, this show's got weird names. <laughs> we are a fanboy every week. We read our stack of comics. One of us picks the one they like best. We call that the pick of the week. We will talk about that book. We will talk about other comics from the week. The patron pick, some listener mail if we have time, and it'll be fun. I have this thing where I work printing books, and we also print magazines, and, and I will refer to everything as books, and people are like, well, it's a magazine. I was like, they're all books, dude. I don't say that, but I think it, because we talk about here we comic issues as books, mm. and I realize just now where that comes from, but. Comic books, the books part. Exactly. You had the pick. I, oh, I did. Wow, we got there quick. Did we do a spoiler warning? We did all that stuff? Oh, nah, we didn't do that part. I didn't do the spoiler warning. But come what on. What the show is? Any of that? I did that part. I wasn't paying attention, honestly. Was, so no. There you go. <laughs> That's where, because I was talking about the books. Remember I said the book, yeah. the other books, the and then. I went off in my own it's, somewhere. It's, you know what? I've done that way. I've It's it's okay. You're in two long-term marriages, so you understand. <laughs> That's funny. I'm not listening to what you were saying. Uh, yeah, I had to pick. <laughs> but I seem like I was here. So that's the yes. most important thing. I get it. I've been married longer than you, pal. <laughs> I feel like I've been married to you longer than you've been married to her. That's also true. <laughs> so anyway, where are we? Oh, right. This is not a marriage counseling show. Pick of the week was Lock and Key. I have needs. 
In Pale Battalions Go, number one. And I've never seen a book that has two sets of ellipses in the subtitle before, but this this one does. And that's pretty much why? <laughs> that's it. That's why we're talking about Good it? Good job, Joe. They're really more of bracketing ellipses, if, I'm, if, if it's formatted correctly. This was the last book I read. I had a big week. It was the first week in a while, or at least I, it feels like the first week in a while where I had over 20 books. I had fun reading them. I found stuff good or interesting. It was just a good week of comics. And then I had finished reading my predetermined stack of books, and I thought I had to pick. I was thinking of it over, and then I saw a new issue Lock and Key was out. I thought, oh, that's weird. I didn't even know it was coming because we, we don't pay attention to the news anymore. We're kind of surprised to see they had gone back to it. Considering the first volume, it was like six or seven or eight trades, however many it was, and really seminal series for IDW and for Joe Hill and Gabriel Rodriguez. But then I read this was just a three-issue miniseries, so I thought, oh, I'll ch- I guess I'll check it out in issues. And I read it, and I really enjoyed it. It was a pick of the week. I was a big fan of the first series, which was about a mysterious house in New England with all these mysterious keys that when you turned locks, did certain things. They all had different abilities. One key, you turned it to lock, open the door, and you got to transport far away. Another one, you could change your age, you could change your gender. You like, It had all kinds of different mystical powers. And it was, a, it was a horror-esque book, but I found it more interesting as a character piece and you know, we're not big horror fans here, but there's always an exception that proves the rule. And this issue, this book is a prequel. Josh, I know you didn't read it, but I would have been really curious to see what you thought, because it takes place in 1915 as the previous people who lived in the Hill House before, because this house has been around since before the American Revolution, so the, the current mm. people living in it. The son really wants to go fight in the war, mm. but he's probably like 13 or 14, way too young. So he uses the transport key to take himself to Canada to try to jo- join the Canadian army to fight the Germans. But the recruiter is like, you're clearly like 14, dude. He's so determined to fight the war that this whole issue is about his machinations to get his hands on the most powerful keys that are off limits to him. So he has to manipulate his father, manipulate his mother, manipulate his sister to get into the vault under the house, steal the most powerful keys. And the story ends with him loaded up with weapons and key stuff and opening a door and then walking out onto the battlefield in Germany. Or at least an exploding village in Germany or France or wherever he is. That's not the place you want to go. No. You would have been in France. But he's 14, and he doesn't know any better, and he wants the glory of war, and he's, he's got a magical weapon, so he thinks he can turn the tide and save the day. So he's, hmm. he's walking out into the battlefield at the end with a little bit of military stuff, a little bit of history. The keys are fun. The f- family the dynamics are great. The thing is, Joe Hill, we've talked about him a bunch on the show, and he's a terrific comic writer in addition to being a novelist and a TV show creator and all that stuff. He really knows the medium. He jumps in with the first lock and key really having a good handle on how to write comics and how to tell a good comic story, and he's only gotten better since then. And Gabriel Rodriguez is just a terrific artist. He does really great character work. Members of his families always look like they're related to each other, but they're not just different versions of the same face. Yeah, I remember you saying that. So are these characters all... De- I mean, theoretically, sounds like you could just read this. This you could just read. This yeah. The last series took place in the current day. This is 1915. I would assume this is like their descendants, because it's this mystical house. The- mm-hmm. You need no reference to the original series you can just read it it doesn't reference anything it gives you all the information you need to know about the keys they're just magical keys that do things when you put them in locks that's another aspect of comic book writing isn't it yeah (laughs) cool it was really fun and unexpected and unlike everything else i read this week and it was just really nice to be oh these guys are back together even if i if it had been like this is a new ongoing lock and key series i may not have read it because i i often feel like you know you did your thing Oh, sure. I don't necessarily need to go back for more personally all the time. Sometimes I do, but not always. Yeah, no, that's always a personal choice, but not all, uh, I'd say not most things where you try to go back home work out, but you know. But this is just a three-issue miniseries, so I figured I would, uh, at least this is what I read, so I figured I'd give it a shot. Like an interesting thing would be that like, Joe Hill doesn't need to do this. No, like, there are a lot of, like, there's a lot of times where people go back and you're like, well, 
nothing else has clearly worked for you for a little while. So you're going back to this and, you know, more power to him. It's fine, but it doesn't always result in the best thing. So when Joe Hill goes back to it, he's got a reason to. He's not being forced to by any economic service. I don't know that's true, but I'm, I'm projecting. Listen, he likes to gamble. Yeah. But the, what's cool about the setup of the story, though, is that it's not like he has to continue with the characters. He can tell stories of this house and its keys at any time. This house has existed for hundreds of years, it says in the opening, since before the Revolutionary War, since America was America. So conceivably, he could go around and, and if he wanted to tell a story from the 1600s, he could do that. So it gives him a bit more leeway. It's really not about the characters, it's about the house. So that's sort of like a house of secrets kind of thing. And you can tell anthology stories. That's fun. I think that there were sort of two reasons I didn't keep up with it. One... I think by the time I got to Lock and Key and, and like finally read one, there was just a lot in front. Like There was a bunch of it, and I was like, I, just, I don't want to do the whole yeah. thing. I don't like to jump on a lot of times. That's not a series. It's like anything. You can't. It's not like you can start reading, you know, Why the Last yeah. Man, number 25. And it's, it's, you have to start from the beginning. Yeah, and also, like, it's clearly very good, but it, it, there's a certain element of it that just wasn't terribly interested in it. But it was really good. I'll check this one out. I'll read this issue. If we're in for three and it's a whole standalone thing, that might be fun. Yeah. You sold one copy. That's what he said. I assume that's what it is. It's a little war stuff. It's a little magic stuff. The family's really interesting. You know, it's they're at a time in the world where things are starting to change. You know, you're you're getting into the suffragette movement here. You know, if he just waited two years, he'd have gone over. <laughs> he has to go now. Either the daughter or the wife is talking about, you know, women's rights to vote. So there's a lot of ha things happening in 1915 that are interesting. You don't often get comics set during that time period. You don't. You don't get a lot of stories from that. You don't get a lot of World War One stuff. It's like this weird little black hole in our history, in so a way. Awful. I mean, like, we know about World War One, and then we know about everything that happens between World War One and World War Two. But there's that little bit in there, and it's, I mean, not to get all this, this last bastion of what America was before industrialization. Mm -hmm. World War One's really interesting because at the beginning of it, you have people going in there with, you know, horses and yep. carts. And at the end, there's, there's vehicles guns. and planes. Yeah, mechanized war in a way that when the French start in, they're all on horses with guns, you know, like, the, and so the Germans are killing them. I mean, literally, but, you know, just like on, on every front. And so, like, everybody has to adapt really fast. And then you, anyway, I could keep going. But it's because of that, though, it's a really fascinating time because there's such rapid advancement in, in you know, killing yeah. machines, quite, you know, quite honestly. And it leads to that big stalemate. I mean, it's a really ripe area for stories, but especially like horror stories because it was a real life horror story. Yeah. And this is not going to go well. Like, no. he's not going to go over there and save the day with his magical weapons. It's going to go wrong for him somehow. Joe Hill we, tells interesting things using this genre, but not necessarily in, in the traditional tropes of the genre. Sure. I really liked the first series. I liked this issue a lot. I'm looking forward to the rest of it. Oh, they're putting out a hardcover from Hell book. Well, look at that. That's a really big hardcover. It's very unlikely I'm going to read that whole thing again. It's a big Twinkie. <laughs> it's a very big Twinkie. We are in the countdown to the forced premature ending of Hellblazer, John Constantine, Hellblazer. Well, I think nine. we should clarify. It wasn't premature. It was, the book was supposed to end at 12. That's true. They just were hoping to keep going, and that, That's a good point. that didn't happen for a lot of reasons we talked about last week or a week before, whenever DC's thing happened. If I may, it would have still been premature. Sure. I'm just saying this arc that Simon Spurrier has been writing that we were reaching the end of was meant to wrap up at 12. You know what I really like? Mm -hmm. I like that we have heard from so many people saying like, like you and I were, were starting to read this early on and you know, I would have read it anyway, but you don't normally read them. Mm -hmm. And we were both like, 
this is good. And as it kept going, like, this is actually really good. Mm-hmm. And the whole time, you know, I'm like, well, this doesn't make any sense that this exists. <laughs> and obviously the world agreed with me. But I liked that people, you know, had jumped back on and said, wow, this is the best it's been in a long time. You know, Simon Spurrier wrote that really great essay on his website about it. I mean, you could feel the passion for the project in mm-hmm. the way that he was talking about it. And I love it because it all translates through the work. It's all there. And you can, you can always tell whatever the art is, whatever, you know, whether it's music or comic books, you're like, you can tell like, oh, these guys are into this. Yeah. You know, and there's times where they're really into it and it's not great. And sometimes it's pretty good and it's just work for hire. But when there's a magical combination of those two things, which I think is the thing that's happening with this book, which is, I might, you know, it's, it's very niche. True. I don't think everybody out there would be like, oh, wow, man, this does sound great. If it's not for you, it's not going to be for you. And that's fine. But it's really, it's really good. So, let's talk about the book. As we've been talking about with the series locks, I think it's been it's been pick of the week at least once, I think twice, and we talk about almost every issue. We might as well talk about them all since we only got a couple left. John Constantine has been attacked from the shadows by his older self from the previous continuity, and he's been using the sort of the situation in the world in Britain in specific to attack him through xenophobia and through hate and through fear by riling up people who are hateful and fearful and, and harming the heart of England. And so here, mm-hmm. uh, it's a one-shot. One thing I like about the series is that he does a one-issue story, he'll do a two-issue story, he'll do a three-issue story, he does whatever. Mm-hmm. He's not in that standard six-issue story. And, and it makes you feel like, wow, I've, we're only in issue nine, but I feel like there's been a few arcs. You yeah, know? been a bunch. But never, none of them stuck around too long. So in this story, the older Constantine approaches the stand-in for Prince Andrew a duke who has a penchant for underage girls and other misdeeds and convinces him because the royal family in England, they're big horse breeders and racers, that he's got this magical horse uh, semen that he should use to breed horses with and he uses his uh, wits to do so. And it turns out that he has tricked the prince into breeding a unicorn. The problem is the unicorn is from a pure and good realm and this, the world is not pure and good. So when it comes out, all hell breaks loose. But this is all being told through John Constantine since relating this story in a bar, and we see it from the point of view of the person he's talking to, so we don't know who he's talking to, and that was a fun reveal as well. I thought this was a really good single issue, considering the page restraint and how hard it is to do in a shorter amount of pages, but I thought this was a real strong single. Yeah, it, it really was. This is not the regular artist who has been on it. He's the second guy. Yeah. Well, he did the whole hipster wizard story line. Oh, that's right. Really? Yeah. I, I kind of don't remember, but I love this art. Yeah. It's classic kind of vertigo, fantastic uh, artwork, you know, like early mid nineties. When we talk about early mid nineties in comic books, you know, people like Mark Silvestri, Rob Liefeld at the same time over at Vertigo, like there's groundbreaking stuff going on. So this kind of reminds me of that. And then, and like the coloring is almost like a watercolor treatment mm-hmm. to it. It's really beautiful. Yeah, it was great. And, and one thing I kind of like is that this book is, this book, super punk rock, <laughs> <laughs> meaning that like, you know, and John comes from literally the seventies punk rock scene in the story, but like, there's a whole different take on the Royal family in these, and it is not, it is not a hopeful majesty one. Mm-hmm. I kind of love it. I love that like the big bad, like the Prince Andrew character. Mm-hmm. I'm going to call him Prince Andrew for now because I saw the Epstein documentary. He seems like a shit bag. You know, Andrew is like the jerk, but the real big bad in the background is the queen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and there's this idea like, oh, they'll get you if they want to. Right. I'm not afraid of the parents. I'm afraid of the mom. Yeah, the special services will come get you. Like, it's not, yeah. you won't see it coming. You won't know what's happening. You'll just be gone. And I like that there's that threat in the background of the little lady with the corgis. <laughs> yeah, like it was, uh, and, and it's true. Like, we don't know who he's talking to. It's a hitman from the Queen. Oh, that's right. 
Yes. At first, I thought it was the girl because it's a woman. Is it the woman? No, it's just we don't know. It's just someone the queen sent over to kill him who poses as a journalist. So at the beginning, that it was a journalist who knew that, but at the beginning, a woman comes. Okay, that's the bartender. That's his friend, the Scottish bouncer. Right, right, right. And then she does the punching at the yeah, end yeah. with the knuckles that say, pure, is it pure hate? No matter. I don't want to flip there. So can I, can I say one thing about this? I like this issue. I've liked this whole run and everything. Mm-hmm. I hate the idea that John Constantine is the bad guy at the end. I know. I hate it. It's not going to make me not enjoy it, but like I, I wish that wasn't the thing. And maybe there'll be a twist that it wasn't it. But it's one of those things where you've got a core character thing, mm-hmm. you know, and the, the core character of this guy is that he's a bastard and you don't really want to be friends with him. And he will use you and anything it can, but it is usually for the greater good. It's never for his ego. And so the idea, I guess, is that this other Constantine was broken at some point, you know? Mm-hmm. Or maybe he's, I don't know, there's lots of ways out of it. But for what it seems like, uh, it's just kind of like, oh, no, not him, too. You know, something will, in the years hence, has pissed him off. That's absolutely possible and believable and realistic, but it's just one of those, like, it's like an evil Superman story. It's like, I don't want to see that. But I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not, I'm not writing it off in any way. Her spiked brass knuckles say pure foul. Oh. Oh, one is pure, one is foul, maybe. Well, either way, she, she punches hard. Yeah, this was good. This was another good issue. Also, Deceased, Hope at World's End, number eight. This is the digital book. And this was... Dogs. Dog book. I, at first, I didn't like the fact that you could understand what the animals were saying to each other. Then I was like, ah, oh, fuck it. Well, they're talking to each other. Right. As long as they... Like, it, you're right. At the first... Also to Beppo. Not Beppo, uh, Detective Chimp. Detective Chimp, and also Comet. All the animals could talk to each other. Yeah. Whatever. First I was like, that's weird, but I was like, ah, fuck it. Yeah, I think that's the best way to go. So in this issue, one of the girls who was left behind from the Unkillables story, she missed the bus, mm-hmm. is on her own, and she ends up being saved from the zombies by Ace the Bat Hound, Crypto, Detective Chimp, and Comet. And this is very much, you know, your We Three kind of thing. Yeah. It is, actually. Your animals, this adorable and tragic people. I did like the idea that they were immune. You know, mm-hmm. so at one point, the zombies attack, and Detective Chimp gets scratched, and the girl's like, oh, no, you've got it. He's like, no. <laughs> His line for that is great, though, yeah. because he says they don't think of animals as sentient. Right. <laughs> Which is pretty stupid, because if you really wanted an unstoppable living death virus, the obvious thing would be to stick it in mosquitoes. That little bit of, it's like Taylor popped his own logic a little. Mm-hmm. You know, and I like that. It's, it's you know, a self-aware bit of writing. It's hard not to feel good about this story. When uh, Crypto and Ace team up, still guarding, yeah. still guarding. Good dog. Yeah, no, that's it. I mean, that, in the, you know, the drawing of Crypto's face, like that alert mm-hmm. thing is really good. His ears are in the wrong position for that, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> His ears would be back in that situation. That is the thing. But the expressions on the dogs and everything. It's actually really pretty good, good dog drawings. Good horse drawing. It's a yeah. weird chimp, but I think it's not weird, but he looks more like a real chimp. And I think I'm used to seeing him as sort of more anthropomorphized as right. a chimp. But I, I, I don't know that people, they must know this, but a, a lot of comic artists do not like ho- drawing horses and dogs. Mm-hmm. And this was all that. And they did a good job. So they got the girl to the safety of the jungle whatever mm-hmm. it's, or whatever it's called. Yeah. The sanctuary. Poison Ivy's Poison Ivy. yep. garden sanctuary. It was good. It was another, another good issue of deceased. I mean, he's getting to do all these stories with these sort of side characters, and it doesn't feel like you're jumping around so much. It's just living in the world. It's, it still feels connected. Now, I thought perhaps Legion of Superheroes number eight might be a pick contender. This is Brian Michael Bendis, and then every page of this is drawn by a different artist. 
many of whom Bendis has worked with in the past, many of whom are associated with him, some of whom are not. I loved it as an art piece, as an experiment, I loved it. I just felt like maybe the story that was telling wasn't as super compelling. Can I tell you something? Yeah. I dropped this at the seven. Oh, you did? Yeah, I just, I was like, I had really enjoyed it at the beginning, and then the further I went, the less I was enjoying it, and then it got to the point where I think it was on seven, the last one, I saw it, and I went, I don't, I don't want to read this. It had tired me out. It, it gives Brian Bendis the latitude to maybe delve into his lesser quality traits in terms of storytelling. Meaning what? Meaning that he starts to juggle too many things. And so he gets to have all of these small moments with all these characters, which he's really good at. But then you lose the sort of narrative thread. Mm. I was a Bendis super fan for a long time. I, I think we all were. And then as he started getting further into Avengers, and again, it was the same thing. The beginning of Avengers was really good. But as he kept going on and we got into this, the siege and all that stuff, like it was just too much. It was just too many characters. And at least I knew those characters. But as we do this with Legion, like I don't know or have an affection for many of them. And so I don't feel like I'm getting to spend enough time with the characters who I do want to spend time with. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. And what you just said to me sounds exactly that, – that is an amazing roster of artists. And I'm, I'm going to look at it because it's going to be beautiful. Yeah, so you've got Evan Doc Shaner, Jeff Lemire, Justin Gwynn, Joel Jones, Michael Evan Emming, Liam Sharp, Andre Lee Rajo, Sanford Green, Cully Hamner, Yannick Paquette, Dan Hip, David Mack, Derek Robertson, Dan Jurgens, Jesus. Bill Quee Evely, Fabio Moon, Michael Allred, Ryan Souk, Alex Malieve, John Timms, and Duncan Rouleau all doing pages in the book. And it started off as like – it seemed like it was Jonathan Kent watching the archives of different characters, and that would make sense. But then it sort of folded back into the main story, and it just the story didn't hold up the art experiment. Now the art experiment was terrific, and I I loved looking at it. And you know they don't tell you the artist till the end, so it was fun to like read it and try to figure out who you were looking at because mm-hmm. some of them are very obvious and some of them are not. Oh, yeah. Some of their names are bigger than others. There wasn't a bad page in here. Every page was terrific. Yeah, no, and it's a, it's obviously it's like a feat of editing. Yeah. You know, like having to organize all that stuff together. He's done this a lot before. Like when he does a special issue, he brings in all of his favorite art friends. Yep. And it's really cool to look at, but it rarely makes a good story. It just doesn't the way that comics work. Or at least what I would consider. If he's stuck with the, you know, in the beginning, he's looking at the orientation file from Ra, and then he goes to different characters. I thought, okay, well, he's going to at least give us like this rundown of how how all these characters join the Legion. That might be a fun way to get to know the characters and just play with the art and then then, like it took like i don't know after like five or six pages it jumped back to the main story we've been doing i was like well all right we had a fun (laughs) thing going there each page still was kind of kind of centered around a different character so yeah you did kind of get that feeling of you were sort of seeing who all the legionnaires were but it's worth looking at for sure i think the problem with legion is always going to be it's just too much Mm mm-hmm you get it's tiny nibbles. It's it's tapas, which you know is not my favorite thing. Like at the beginning, though, you know your story is Rose. Yeah. Your story is Jonathan Kent. Your story is Saturn Girl. Maybe one or two others. Every you know Brainiac, and then it starts. Everything after that starts to spin out of control, and it gets hard to hold on to. And I get it. There's a there's a temptation to want to play with all these crazy yeah, characters no, I, and their powers, and that might even be a feature, not a bug of this team, which is maybe why you and I never ever really read it. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it might be that's that's what you show up for. So I'm not even going to go so far as to say it's bad. I just, it's, it's failing to hold me. I get you. Quick break time. Let's talk about patreon.com slash ifanboy. That's where you can go help the show, keep us going, support us in our endeavors to entertain you as we talk about comics. 
the main support comes from there. We have a lot of great patrons. We have hopefully a lot of great features for them. And one of the things they do is they unlock shows. They unlock our Talksplode show, our Booksplode show, their Mediasplode show. And the next show they would unlock would be our G.I. Joe show. We would be taking the uh, G.I. Joe Corner feature. We did it on, during the break, during the... I keep saying break like we were on spring break. During the lockdown when there were no new comics. And we would expand it out to a, a show that we would do regularly talking about the old G.I. Joe cartoon. That's our next stretch goal. After that is the return of the quarterly video barbecue show which uh, is, was always a fan favorite as well as our favorites, not our doctor's favorites, however. We'll bring those back if we had our next stretch goal over at patreon.com slash ifanboy. ifanboy.threadless.com is where you can get our t-shirts or you can get any of our designs and other products that they sell at, this, at the website, including masks. Everyone needs masks these days, and we have a bunch of fun designs on those because you might as well have fun while the world is ending. Those are at ifanboy.threadless.com. Also, ifanboy.com slash support is where you can help us out directly via PayPal, and ifanboy.com slash Amazon is how you can... Check out the books we've talked about in the books below, as well as shop on Amazon. And those are all the ways you can help us. We thank everyone who does, even those eccentric billionaires who have not shown up yet to go to fm.com slash support. We're still out there, still waiting. Josh still has his eyes on a Porsche. You've just given an amazing segue. I know, I just realized that. Billionaire Island number five of four, and according to the end of this, not the last issue. <laughs> yeah, so we talked about it before saying that it was wrapping up four, because that's what the... That's what the solicitations said. Or, you know, you go on Diamond, it says Billionaire Island, four of four. So we were like, oh, that's the last issue. And then here we get number five, which is listed as five of four on Diamond. So who the hell knows what's happening? Because as, as Josh said, there's a to be continued because the story is clearly not over. So I don't know. This book still remains strange, although I did like this issue a lot. I liked seeing the creation of the island. I liked yeah. I liked as the, the prisoners broke out and things did not go as, as planned for them in a variety of ways. It felt like things were actually happening, plus I was learning about things that I found interesting. I still don't know what Mark Russell's trying to say here, other than income inequality is bad. But I feel like he needs to go deeper than that, otherwise, I think, what's the point? I think that it has gotten, it has gotten more fun as we moved on, because we finally spent time with some people. Like, it's interesting that the crazy guy who built the island, mm-hmm. you know, who we've spent a lot of time with, he's the guy we know the best now. Right. Yeah. And so obviously they do that to him. They do the thing <laughs> they did. Yeah. And there's a bit at the end where I'm guessing most people aren't read this. So I don't want to. But the, all the expectations of what you think is going to happen in this with the characters are are continually slapped down. Yeah. That's what I like that bit. Yeah. No. Yeah. Uh, like all that. Like you're like, well, they're about to win. No, they're not going to win. Well, this guy's going to make. No, he's not going to make it. Well, this guy is going to lose. No, he's not. You know, like you're completely on your toes all the time. Mm hmm. I think it is a larger sort of meta point that people keep making bad decisions <laughs> about themselves and what's going to happen. And it's all about this like hubris and unearned confidence. It's everything in the book is unearned confidence mm-hmm. and how that comes back to bite people on the ass. I did like the idea that this island was done on the cheap. Like you think yeah. Billionaire Island would be like the state of the art, like everything would work. But no, you find out in the flashbacks that they wanted to pay the lowest to the contractor, pay the cheapest materials, as many people who have a lot of money tend to do. And so as a result, the infrastructure may not be as strong as you would have thought in the beginning, which I thought was a fun... I mean, when you want to talk about sort of going deeper, I think that he's doing that. And I think it's doing it in smaller ways. That's through the satire stuff. But like that so much of it is artifice, mm-hmm. you know, and you and you, you play that out and you go, oh, you know, like your big, beautiful mansion. Maybe it's it just kind of looks that way, but it's not great. Because, I, I mean, one of the things, like, when you think about being rich, one of the things I think is, like, at least all my doors will shut tightly and <laughs> they will be heavy 
little things like that. And then you think, I bet that there's like a mansion somewhere and they use shitty MDF doors, you know, and right. it looks beautiful. And it, but it's still kind of crappy. You know, my favorite joke in this issue was, and then we can move along. What's that? So they decide that they need to build a prison. They cut and there's a sign that just says coming soon to freedom unlimited colon freedom limited. <laughs> that was a good joke. <laughs> and, the, and the castle looks like Castle Grayskull. <laughs> and then the cheap labor they brought in to build it go right into the prison. Because that's so grim. I was like, the, that's some dark shit, Russell. The prison is made for people who are, on, who are not supposed to be on the island or, the, or people who, you know, who, whose net, net worth is not high enough. For some reason, I also think that with this story, specific this issue, the things that went on, like Steve Pugh really had a, like this was good for him. Yeah. Like it was a really good, there's a lot of the stuff that I saw in this that I liked about Flintstones a lot. Like crowds of people who are like simultaneously either really happy or really disappointed going from one to the other. And the, what was the, what's the robot called? Uh, the Carmen, the robot? Barman Miranda. Barman Miranda. <laughs> it's funny. It's a funny issue. It's a very funny issue. It was one of the better ones. It might have been the best issue. I think it might have been. Yeah. yeah. Smart bullets. <laughs> so. It's a good issue. I don't know why I wanted to talk about Empire Captain America against Empire Captain America number three, Philip Kennedy Johnson, Ariel Olivetti, Rochelle Rosenberg, Ariana Mar. Other than to say that of all of the Empire-related things, other than the main story, it's the only one I'm still reading. This was the final issue. It's the only one I finished all the way to the end. Like I, I didn't even finish Avengers or, or X-Men. They both had one more issue yeah. to go. And I just didn't Me too. Care. But what's interesting is that when you started to talk about it, I go, wait, I remember getting this, but I don't think I read it. And then I opened it. I was like, oh, I did read it. It made no impact on me whatsoever. Yeah. I mean, I liked it ultimately, the idea of Cap sort of rounding up a bunch of regular soldiers to help fight off this invasion. Right. And, and their sort of adoration of him, even if that one guy was obnoxious, and his cappiness... Yeah, I liked all that. It was good. It's just at the I end did. of the day, and you're it, wrapped up. They're fighting plant monsters, and I don't really care about that. It's true, but like it was kind of a promise unfulfilled. Mm. The idea of it sounds great, and the bits where they're sitting around and talking are fine, but all the stakes around it, we don't care about. Yeah. You know what I mean? And at one point, there's a bit where Cap realizes that the guy doesn't have any power. It's the thing he's holding, and he has to knock the thing away. And I was like, oh, that's so G.I. Joe. It's so cheap. And I, I, like, I just feel like I've seen it in a bunch of things. And so, like, you know, the personal stuff, this is, this is the same thing. Last issue where he's talking about, like, taking a bridge in Germany, and you're like, hell yeah. And then it's like three panels that are sort of poorly drawn, and mm-hmm. just it doesn't, it just doesn't pay off on the promise. But it was the one that I kept reading because I thought maybe it will pay off on the promise. And there's good things about it. There's bit, I don't think this is the best Ariel Olivetti I've ever seen, but there are bits of it where you're like, okay, there he is. That's good. I thought this issue looked better than the others. It did. Yeah, no. And a giant mountain-sized monster leveling a city is pretty good. That part was all right. Cap doing his thing where nothing else is working, so he's going to have to do it himself. But how is Cap going to take out a giant mountain-sized monster? You know, what does Cap do against Godzilla, basically? Yeah. But the idea that he'll figure something out. He's going to just fly up there without a plan. You know, that's very quintessential Captain America. Yeah, and I, I also like the part. One thing that was good, actually, I don't want to be too. There's a tactic. You know, we there's too many. we got to slow their advance. And then he's like, all right, set that on fire. Set up a perimeter there. Like, he comes up with an actual, you know, mm-hmm. a strategic plan. Yeah. That's fun. It was, you know, take charge, be the military commander. And there's military tactics in that. I really like that because we forget far too often that Captain America is a soldier, you right. know, and he would have that kind of training and instincts. It was enjoyable as opposed to the yeah. other ones where I just kind of got sick. Remember when Empire was coming out weekly and then they just stopped after issue five? Mm. 
Remember that? I mean, no, but that sounds familiar. <laughs> That's what was happening. It was coming out weekly, but yeah. wasn't that just last week? Like so? No, it was like two weeks ago. Two okay. weeks ago. Yeah, well, let's just just end it. The question is this: What do you have to say about the Amazing Spider-Man number forty-seven that we have not already said about this arc? Well, you know how I was not into it. Yeah, I was kind of into it this time. <laughs> That's what I was going to bring up, and I was just realizing, like I, I think I got the metaphor. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, it's the metaphors about the world right now. Yeah, no, I get that, but I don't think that that was terribly clear, at least to the depth that because the other one before was about the mob, like basically like they had gotten to the point where, like the people really liked that there was violence happening, you know, and that was like a form of revenge that they were into. But I think this got deeper into that. And Nick Spencer is a pretty deep thinker. It doesn't always show up in your in your Amazing Spider Man, and nor should it. But I think that his connection to world events became a lot more solid in this one. There were just more connecting tissue to sort of make it make sense, you know, where, what's his name, Sin Eater? Mm-hmm, yep. You know, becomes more of a, a demagogue, a cult leader. And then when they say what they're going to do at the end is to go after, I will spoil this, uh, is to go after Norman Osborn. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. It brought events to somewhere that we're on a destination and it's an interesting destination, you know, and Spider-Man's in the position, like, shit, who's he supposed to defend here, you know? I liked it more. That's that's what I'm getting at. Yeah, it's not a new idea, but it doesn't have to be a new idea. It just depends on how it's executed. No. The idea that Sin Eater is creating this army of people who want to take revenge on the world, want to kill criminals, and so he's got this army of people wearing masks like him who are those who want to... Cleanse. Cleanse the world of sin. Which is today, you know, to say they want to feel morally superior. They want to feel like they have power. Right. And, you know, and on the very surface... Every single thing that Sin Eater says makes sense. Which is how you start a cult. Exactly. And it, it really, you know, and you even as a reader, you're just like, well, you know. He makes good points. And, and that's, you know, that's how it happens. Right. That's the part where I think that some of the sophistication of this storytelling that I had not seen before, I think, became more crystallized in this. And so I liked it. That's, and that's what I had to say that was different. When you first put it on, I was like, oh, he's, he's just going to say he doesn't like it again. We need something new here. See? Good for you. Keep you on your toes. Those are the books we're going to talk about. It's a big week of comics. We could have talked about more, but we have a, we have a format. Let's do the Patreon pick. Patreon.com slash iFanboy. That's where you can go. Every patron can add a book to the rundown by voting. And this week, for the third week in a row, we had a blowout. Although this was the smallest blowout, it was still a blowout. The winner was Batman, Three Jokers, Book One from Black Label, written by Jeff Johns, art by Jason Fabok, colors by Brett Anderson, letters by Rob Lee. And this is Jeff Johns' long-awaited Batman Black Label miniseries that, according to Jim Lee, has sold 300,000 copies. I sent some doubt in that, the way that you said that. Maybe it it didn't. I don't have access to the numbers. That's what he said in that interview with the Hollywood Reporter. So this is... I saw people talking on our various patron groups, like trying to fit this into continuity. It's Black Label. It's not in continuity. So you don't need to worry about it. It's a standalone Batman story. And until I read Lock and Key, this was the pick of the week, by far. This is the best Batman book I read in a long time. I'm going to say different things than you. (laughs) I saw it and I thought, oh, God, I don't want to read a Joker story. And then I saw his pick of the week or the patron pick and I went, yeah, that makes sense. I mean, which is fine. It's, it's an understandable one. And then I was like, I guess I have to read it. I am. I'm Joker right out for sure. Yeah, I know um, you are. Yeah, I think it was. Why don't you talk about. I, I'm not I'm not going to be like, I hate this. Here's what's wrong with it. It's not that. But I have I have complicated feelings about it. It's not perfect. You know, Jeff Johns is. He definitely in, Doom, in Doomsday Clock, he's, he's been telling, you know, nine panel grid stories, and this is another one. And it's not necessarily in his 
wheelhouse. Okay, you're bringing up that. I read it. I was like, well, I get it. You did it before, and it worked okay, but like, it really constrains the guy like Fabok. So at first, I thought I was like, oh, he's, he's having him do this in the Watchmen style too. Right. And then I realized that that's not exactly it. Like, there's parts of it that are basically Fabok is doing a, a credible impersonation of a bunch of artist styles. I guess that's the way to put it. You know, it, at first it looks like Brian Bolland. You know, like it's it's mostly the through line seems to be that it's mostly looking like Killing Joke, and then yep. the different characters, the different types of Jokers show up, and they're different. You know, there's you know there's the Killing Joke Joker. There is, you know, the the original Joker. The Bob Kane Joker. Yeah, yeah, and then yeah. there's like Aparo's Joker who killed Jason Todd. Yep. Yep. But mostly it's it's certainly the production. I don't remember if Ballin used a lot of nine panel grid or things like that. But mostly I mean it there's a very credible Brian Bolland killing joke coloring impersonation here. From Brad Anderson. Yeah. Uh, but also from from Fabok, and I actually think it's really interesting because in the last book, in the Watchmen book, you had Gary Frank doing Dave Gibbons, and, and I was like, this is like the best Jason Fabok stuff I've ever seen, and I was like, but that's not good because he's just doing a different style, and I, and I'm, I was like, I think most of it's his style. I think there's only okay. there's only a couple of illusions. I mean, he's on a continuum of Gary Frank's on one end and David Finch is on another end, and Fabok's sort of in the middle. I think that's very good. Yeah. This is the style. It's just occasionally he he gives you homages in the story, but I mean this is the way he draws. <laughs> yeah, then maybe that is Brand Anderson. It has more to do with the sort of production of it than anything. But the storytelling, the the sort of you know panel layout, you know that stuff is definitely indicative of the older style of comics. So the story here is that the Joker's been spotted committing three different crimes at the same exact time. They think you know one is clearly Joker, and the other two must be uh, impersonators. And Batman gets involved, and Batgirl gets involved, and Jason Todd gets involved. And I like the idea that it's the three members of the family who are most impacted by the Joker. You know, it's not like there's no Dick Grayson, there's no Damien. It's it's the three who have been hurt the most. So they all get involved. The idea seems to be that they're all the Joker. Again, don't try to put this in continuity. Batgirl's wearing her old ish costume, which is awesome. Batman is. Red Hood's not wearing the new... It's not in the new current world. It's a, it's a black label book. It's outside of continuity. And to me, what was one of the joys of it was it really felt like a classic Batman story. I don't really care about the Joker War story happening in the main books. It doesn't do anything for me. I'm not that excited about it. But if this was the Joker War, if they put this story by these creators in the main book, I think that'd be a lot more exciting than what's happening now, which is not at all exciting. This felt very personal. The characters are dealing with something intensely personal here while they're also fighting these you know, villains and... I thought there were fun, big action sequences. There's a lot of moral dilemmas when Jason Todd is involved. And there's a lot of pathos here you can mine. I really like this a lot. And the ending was shocking, too. I believe that this is probably much more successful for people who are very knowledgeable about Batman lore, Mm -hmm. I guess. You've got to know your shit, I think, to get the most out of this. You have to be familiar with Killing Joke. You've got to be familiar with the death in the family. Those are big stories, but at the same time, you yeah. still have to be familiar with them. Even more than that, like there's the thing where they cut, you know, when there's the Bob Kane Joker, I yep. had to adjust and be like, what am I looking at? And I figured it out, but, you know, like that's an 80-year-old story. Right. And then you get to the part where they, when then later they go into the aquarium, and I was like, holy shit, it's a Joker fish. That's a, you know, that's a 70s story. Right. You know, and the, the idea that there's a big shark in a tank. And by the way, that's a great Batman story as far as I'm <laughs> concerned. So I was like, this part's fun. I think the trouble for me is a little bit of like, I kind of just was having trouble getting my footing. 
mm-hmm. in terms of, you know, I know it doesn't matter what continuity we're in, but it does matter in the context of like, all right, so what has Barbara Gordon gone through here? Is this the same as the killing joke? And is it the original all on killing joke? Or is it the slightly modified for modern audiences killing joke? It seems to be the full on killing joke from the flashbacks. It does. And, but even that's an interesting choice, you know, that I don't know that I I don't know because for a lot of people, they're like, well, let's leave that story behind for various reasons. And I don't necessarily want to, you wouldn't want to get rid of it, but I don't know that bringing it into any kind of current continuity is necessarily the best idea. It's not like they've ignored it. It's it's been referenced a lot in her series. Yeah. It's fully in the DC firmament. Okay. Well, and that, that's me not knowing. There's even a panel here where it's one of the Mignola covers, which I thought was kind of crazy. So like on that, in, you know, in terms of referencing things that happened before and superhero comics is one of the best ways to do that without seeming completely lazy. But I don't know. I couldn't quite get a handle on it, I guess, is what I'm getting at. I really like the sequence in the beginning where Batman stumbles into the cave injured and Alfred has to cut the costume off of him and, and fix him up. And you get flashbacks to each scar, you know, mm-hmm. to sort of show the toll that this has taken on him. I don't know if that's going to mean anything or it's just a way to you know, sort of intro you to the story of how hard this is on the heroes, but I liked that. I liked it all became about the Joker at the end. It, it was a good visual you know, lead into mm-hmm. the story. This was much more impactful to me than anything that's happened in Batman since Tom King has left. Yeah. I'll say this. this is the best Batman story I read since Batman Universe, the most mm-hmm. I've enjoyed reading a Batman book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I get that. I think one of, the, one of the things that's interesting is that it's been a lot of Jason Todd lately, and mm-hmm. I don't, it's not a character I come across all that often like right. i haven't read the red hood stuff all that much but he was in deceased mm-hmm. you know the unkillables he's in that animated series that we've been reading and now he's over in this and i'm trying to figure out what the zeitgeist connection is with him right now because he's definitely having a little moment yeah he's definitely been in more stories lately well, i don't know why oh well, i mean it seems to me like it, you know armchair psychology you know like it's the same thing that's going over on the spider-man issue with the sin eater like it's like people trying to figure out that middle ground between themselves and, and sort of the other side of things. Mm-hmm. This is making a generalization about comic book professionals and sort of where they sit politically, but I don't think it's that big of a secret. You know, Jason Todd is sort of this link to, you know, like, well, what about what about our more basic instincts? What if you do just take care of the bad guys? Like, what if you do the simple thing? It's interesting. Yeah. This embodies the last scene with Joker and yeah. Barbara and Jason. That was a good, I thought that was a good scene. Yeah. All right. You've made me appreciate it a little more. Look, it's out of continuity. So, like, at one point, Joker says, you know, do you remember what you said to me while I was hitting you with that crowbar? You said, please, if you save my life, I'll be your Robin. It's like, that's a major yes. new thing. But again, it, it doesn't matter. It's out of continuity. It doesn't matter in terms of what it is, but it does matter in context for the stuff. So, like... No, what I mean is it matters. I've seen people talking online, like, oh, is he changing oh, yeah, what no. happened? The joke... You know, like, it's, no, he's not. He's telling a specific story on his own. That's point right. of black label. That's all I'm saying. You're right. That part doesn't matter. But it does matter if you are inferring things that happened in the past that I'm not sure about are new or we're in the text. And so therefore you don't know where the character is coming from. Like, I feel like we're missing a little bit of the subtext in that. And just that, like, I haven't read, uh, not what's the Joker's killing joke. No. What's the Robin killing story. Death in the family. Death in the family. I haven't, like, I haven't read that in 30 years, you know, or 20, you know, like, and so like the details of it get kind of lost, but they're referring to the details of it here. And that's a very comic book thing to do. But the nuances of like, well, what have you changed? What was in the text? What wasn't? Just so I can sort of understand where, where they're going. I find that to be a little difficult. There is an interesting point here. Now he's saying, now you're going around killing people. You have become my Robin anyway. Oh, yeah. No, I love that. Which is funny because over in Nightwing, 
he's brainwashed Nightwing into thinking that he was always his sidekick. When a character who is not in everything sort of shows up in three different ways and three different continuities, you know, in a sort of small amount of time, it, it can get a little confusing too. But I really like this. I, and I like Faybach. I, I wasn't always a Faybach fan, but I think I like where he's settled in. It's still in that Jim Lee lane. Mm-hmm. Although he's not yeah. as far over as Jim Lee. He's not as far over as Finch, but he's not as far the other way as Frank. But he also has elements of all those people in his style. So he's, I think he's settled into an interesting style. It's, he's definitely a talented, yeah. good artist. These guys always end up on Batman for some reason. Yeah. And I don't know what else you can put them on. I'm casting my dream comic. It, he's not going to be drawing it, but if he's drawing it, I'm not going to be upset about it. Okay. So this is Batman Three Jokers book one of I don't know how many. And mm-hmm. we'll find out more about what's happening with all these jokers in future issues. If you're going to continue reading it, Josh, let's do ratings. 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 I'm going to give it a four and a half out of five. Wow. I'm going to go three and a half. And I think that I wasn't going to keep reading it until we had this conversation. And now I think I will keep reading it. Keep reading as long as you're enjoying it. I got to tell you, I love the color palette from Killing Joke. The original one, or though? No, no, no. The the original one. The original one was garish, and then they recolored it more realistic. Did? Yeah. I'm going re-release. to the original. I don't think I've seen the new one. It was garish, but like, I just like that style. I loved it. I was it. at the point where coloring like that wasn't normal. It was like it was a prestige issue. Yeah. Brian Bolland recolored it for the re-release, supposedly the way he really wanted it to look, which is to look uh-huh. look realistic, as opposed to like very pop art. And I like the pop art stuff. Yeah, but me also too. there was just a there was a depth to it that uh, you know other comic because it was you know it was when they were adding shade and you know dimension that wasn't in most of the comics at that point. It was new, mm-hmm. and I like that. You know. All right. So there you go. Patreon.com slash iFanboy. Every patron can vote to add a book to the rundown, but if you give the five dollar or higher level, you get your own superpower live on the show. Josh, you first. Oh, fine. Well, Amir Malekpour, I'm sorry if I did that wrong, can hit every deadline. And, and, and furthermore, uh, he can give you the strategy. Like if you're like, I, I don't know how to hit my deadline, he'll, he'll quickly assess uh, it's a supernatural power. Oh, here's exactly what you need to do to hit your deadline. And you will if you, if you follow his steps exactly. Right. He does not need to try to do those things. He will hit the deadline. He's never he's never over any deadlines. He he finishes things at when they're supposed to be done. So he doesn't just work hard. It just it just magically happens. He always hits the deadline. Yeah, it's not about just work hard. Although that could be an element of it. But you know, like when uh, you know the robot, you see through their eyes and they assess all of the things. Right. Mm-hmm. Or 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 when when uh, Neo sees the Matrix. Sure. He's like that, but just for deadlines. You got to okay. get this work done this in this amount do. of time. Yeah. Yeah. So he's like the ultimate project coordinator. He's the ultimate project, yeah, project Project manager. manager, yeah. Yeah. There you go. It's a useful power. Sure. Don't tell me it's not. And it's any kind of deadline. Yeah, his direct reports love him. What if it's like a criminal deadline, like a terrorist has got to blow up a building by 3 o'clock unless this happens? Does that count as a deadline too? Yeah. yeah he knows, no, he, yeah, totally he knows exactly how to get out of that situation? Yeah, he, yeah. Well, okay, given the time, given the problem, this is exactly what you do. There you go. Now people, people are just human. Like he can do the things, but and he, but he can, he can only show them the way. He can't. Sure. He, he can't, can't force them. them. Yeah. He's not a deadline despot. No. James Lenano. Of course, the Lenano crime family. <laughs> he can make any image the highest possible res and DPI. Oh, that would be useful. So he can t- he can take any photograph and he can make it high res. He can make any DPI. He can blow it up and it'll, it'll not, won't lose any. Uh, resolution. He can do that to any photograph. He's never like, oh, I found the perfect image, but it's too blurry. It's never a problem for yeah. James. 
Oh, man. You know where he would have been useful? <laughs> Back in the old video days? That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. Patreon.com slash iFanboy. Thanks to Amir and James. They gave it the $5 higher level to get them super hard live on the show. We know there's a lot of you waiting for your powers. There's a lot of powers to go. There's only two of us. We're going to get to everyone eventually. A lot of people waited a lot longer than you. We got a lot of new patrons over the over the hiatus time, and plus we're waiting to get to the people who have upgraded since joining, and it's a whole long list, and it's it's a big spreadsheet, and it, you're going to get your power eventually. We have time probably for one email. I think that's fair. You want to pick one? Uh, I didn't read them yet, so you... Carl C. says, I didn't write in about the DC Comics editorial implosion because I assumed you guys would talk about it. We mentioned last week that no one wrote in about it. So, now come the excuses. Carl says... <laughs> you blamed him. <laughs> Carl says, <laughs> What do you think it signals that Warner put two solid but relatively unknown editors in charge of DC Comics as editors-in-chief? Be honest, when they were named, most comics fans said, Who? I would posit to Carl that most comics fans would not even know who the previous editor-in-chief of DC Comics was. I would posit that most comics fans... I'm talking about not the super users, the ones who are on the websites or the podcasts. Those people are a minority of comics fans. But most random comics fans you met in a store or at Comic-Con or somewhere, if you ask them who's the editor-in-chief of DC Comics, most of them I always think would have said Dan Tadio or Jim Lee last year. Yeah, which I think is sort of by design because yeah. Bob Harris hung out in the shadows. And it, you know, we, we, you know, we were pretty aware of what's going on. I couldn't tell you a single thing that he's responsible for. No one ever mentions him. Ever. Right, that's my point. Is that It's not like Marvel where they put their editor-in-chief out in front. Which is also a strategy. That's a Stan yeah. Lee strategy. That's the point. He's cult of personality. That's why... Although C.B. Sobolski has been sort of shadowy like uh, Harris, yeah. but when Casada was the editor-in-chief, well, the point is this. I don't think most comics fans knew that Bob Harris was actually editor-in-chief and not Dandity or Jim Lee. I just think that if you asked most of them, they would have known that. The only relevancy is that it doesn't really matter that you don't know the names of these editors-in-chief, or you didn't know them before, because it wasn't really a position in D.C. that they really promoted in terms mm-hmm. of public awareness. What is it? Single to me? Again, not knowing total speculation, Marie Javins is a highly respected editor responsible for a lot of interesting work out of DC. I was actually, I didn't know who she was either, and I sort of looked up her, her resume. She was a colorist, I think. Yeah, she started as a colorist, yeah. And then I looked at the books, you know, that she'd been involved with, and I was like, well, that's a good sign. I mean, you know, th- that Mark Russell Flintstones that we loved so much, that's, yeah. she had everything to do with that. And Michelle Wells is out of the YA space, and that's clearly where DC is putting a lot of their chips. So it makes sense that you've got one editor who is all about finding, telling, telling great stories, and another editor who is all about owning the most viable space. An area of publishing that's the only growth area. So it makes sense that these are the two new editors-in-chief to me. It doesn't seem that strange. Yes. Again, not knowing anything about them or anything about what's going on, just as a total outsider's perspective, that's what I think I mean, the only thing that's kind of interesting about it is that DC really has this kind of rule by committee. Yeah, they got like six people in charge. Yeah, and you know, it was the same thing before that. You had Bob Harris, editor chief. We don't know who he did. You had co-publishers, Jim Lee and Dan DiDio. Dan DiDio seemed to be the one who was running the line. Then for a while, you had the CCO, the chief creative officer. And you have the president. Johns, and then there was a president. You know, it, it used to be that... Paul Levitz was the guy. He was several of those things. He was chairman, he was publisher, you know, and he functioned sort of in that same way that the editor-in-chief functioned over at Marvel. Paul Levitz is there. There was no DC Entertainment to have a president of, so he was sort yes. of, he was the top level. You know, whereas, you know, well, it, this has changed. It might just be that because of the way that media and conglomerates and all that stuff work, this is just not going to be the same kind of top-down thing. But it's weird to me from a management structure, especially of a creative thing, to have two editors-in-chief, like... 
if they're coming from different directions, you've really got to. The, yeah, I mean, the only thing that makes sense to me is they'll have different responsibilities. But I, again, yeah. I don't know. I don't. We're not inside there, so I don't. I don't know the mm-hmm. answer. You know, Marvel has an editor in chief. It has a president. It has a publisher. So it has. You know, that's how. That's the hierarchy of publishing. Just that the interesting thing about DC is they they like to have two of them, <laughs> co-editors in chief, co-publishers. Yeah, two of them. Who knows? They're, they're, they like to sit, I guess. <laughs> okay, so, but in the larger scope, it's funny because he called it an editorial implosion, and I don't think that that's the correct term. Yeah. Because it, implosion indicates it comes from inside, and it did not come from inside unless you consider AT&T inside, but I consider that outside. It just feels like, you know, it's a thing that a lot of us have seen coming or have at least heard from other people that it will be a thing that's coming where AT&T looks at that business and the amount of profit or revenue that it generates is insignificant enough that they're not worried about breaking convention. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you can look at it and go, well, Jesus, they made a hundred million dollars, you know, and you know, at this point to a giant corporation, it's like, all right, but if we break this all down, how much can we make out of it? Which is really scary for anybody who works in a job that's profitable yeah. <laughs> because, you know, like, yeah, it's profitable, but, you know. Well, they started, it, if you think back to the hue and cry around when they canceled Filmstruck, at the time, the report was that Filmstruck was profitable. It just was that it yeah. wasn't profitable enough. Yeah. When you're a multi, multi-billion dollar multinational corporation, you want billions of dollars, not millions of dollars in profit. And that's... Or hundreds of millions. Yeah, you know. Yeah, but DC, or publishing, supposedly is a hundreds of million dollar business. But right. we don't know also the answer to that either. The real thing is the average fan, and even us to an extent, doesn't really understand the just layers and layers of people in charge of DC. You know, and it's not just the publishing. There's global franchise people. There's consumer products people. It's part of a giant corporation. It's a whole corporate structure. It's just that we only really interface with the publishing side of it. But it's a whole it's a whole mechanism. Yeah. And I, I do think that, you know, a lot of the sort of publishing comic book side of things is very based in tradition. Like this is we we do these things. This right. is how we do them. There's a great history. Look at Dick Giordano, look at, you know, whatever it is. And so we keep doing these things the way that we do. And so if you are in charge and you have fiduciary responsibilities for a big company or something like that none of that matters to you and that who is who owns things now so all of the sort of standards and the sort of rules you can't break they don't care about right and i don't know if that's good or bad it's scary it's certainly scary if you are an employee of these organizations and there was a certain amount of security and knowing that this is how things run and that's all gone now we are dancing around the fact, by the way, that a lot of people who have put a lot of time and love into comic books lost their jobs, and there's not going to be a lot of similar comic book positions for them to move into laterally. And I think that that's such a bummer. Well, that's obviously the worst thing. Yes, happen. I mean, not, it really isn't. Like, Hellblazer getting canceled really sucks, and I, I'm sad about it, and it sucks for the people who are making money making it. But, like, at the end of the day, people losing their livelihood is way worse than us losing a comic book. Yeah, and, and, you know, most of the people I know who work in comics work in comics because they love comics. Yeah. There are... Many, 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 many more ways to make a better, easier living. It's not extremely high paid, you know, certainly under a certain level. It's deadline driven. Amir, <laughs> it's, it's you have to love it, I think, you know, and it's, it's it also it's a little messed up. Like there's a lot of shit that's messed up about comics. So, you know, but they went for it. You know, they were in that thing. Who else, hire, you know, is going to hire comic book editors of a certain level, you know, maybe Marvel picks some up. Maybe somebody will go to Dark Horse or whatever. Those are, you know, you you got to move to Portland or whatever. You're taking a pay cut. You're it's all sorts of things. Like, I mean, there are other places to go. There's yeah, book publishing in terms of graphic novels. You know, that's where m- yeah, more money's made in 
YA graphic novels in it are made in mainstream comics we're talking about. So there's places to go. Yeah, but there's not a lot, and there's not, there's not a lot of them, though. And you can't stick with the thing you were doing. Like, if you were like, I really love working in mainstream superhero comics. That was the thing that I, my lifelong dream. Like, ugh, yeah. that's a rough thing. And also, Mark Doyle and uh, Andy Corey, you know, who were yep. doing a lot of those good back, back label, label stuff, books. Yeah. You know, Doyle's a hell of an editor and eye for talent. And that is, that is a huge bummer that that's not valued, right. I suppose. Just, that's just one person out of many, many, many. I'm trying to look to see who edited this Batman book. Doyle was the uh, executive editor of Black Label, but who was the actual editor of it? Where is the page? Here it is. In the front. The other ones have been in the back. Uh, so yeah, this is Mark Doyle. He edited, He was actually the editor on it. It's going to be interesting going forward. But yeah, I mean, that's... The thing is, like, these two new editors-in-chief, there's no celebrity editor-in-chief they're going to put in place. That's not what DC does. There's no celebrities left in comics. Yeah, that's true. All right. We went long on that one. Contact iFanboy.com. That's how you can write in. We had other ones ready to go, but we'll have to get to you next week. And let's talk about what's coming up or what has happened, what has already happened. Media Explode number six already happened where we talked about Perry Mason. We also had some other fun conversations about other things we were streaming. And, yeah, and I want to point out to people, if you don't watch the main conversation point, there's other conversations that happened throughout that hour. We talked about missing going to the movies. We had a fun grab bag segment where I asked Josh and Ron random questions. We talked about other shows we were watching. Like, we put the main show in the title, but if you haven't watched Perry Mason, you can skip that part. It's like pick of the week. Yeah. Yeah, you'd listen to the show if you hadn't necessarily read the book. Maybe you wouldn't. I don't know. But it's only, we'll say, a third of the show. Especially this one. I think, I think we only did 20 minutes on Perry Mason out of that mm-hmm. one hour of the show was. So the rest of the show was other stuff. Yeah. And then uh, Booksplode Pluto. It's out. Uh, volume 1 is out as of uh, a few days before this show came out. That's there, which means that I uh, have a Toxplode coming up. You do? Next month. I'll have to figure that out. I got some ideas. We're we're work on that. Do you guys like the... <laughs> I could use a mirror for this. Actually, I'm actually pretty good at that deadline part of it. We'll see what happens with that. I think we know the, the final two books, books, but we're not going to say them until we know for sure. No. But I think we have no, them no. planned for the rest of the year. There's only two more left because that's how fast yep. this is going. Uh, also coming up in September will be the next Animated Brain Trust show, Superman Man of Tomorrow. will be talked about by Ryan, Paul, and I. And then in about a month, we're having episode 750. That's the live recorded all-email show that we do once a year. So if you want your email on the live episode 750, and I say live, but you're going to probably listen to it pre-recorded. We're going to record it live. People can watch it recorded live as we always do. But if you want your episode in the big 750th episode extravaganza, write into concretifanboy.com, subject line 750. We'll start collecting all those emails for the show. No topic is too big. No topic is too small. I think Ryan will be joining us. So that's something to keep in mind if you want to have questions for him. So start getting those emails in. you got about a month to start sending in your 750 emails. That'll be fun. Get over to ifanboy.com. That is where all of this stuff lives. All of our podcasts are there. Many of our other things are there. Our entire archive of writings and, and things like that and, and news. And can I tell you how happy I am to not be doing comics news anymore? I am just thrilled about it. I didn't like it to begin with, and I hate it now. It didn't seem as much fun. No, no, not at all. No. no. Uh, here's what's wrong. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> This person's evil. Okay. Find out what the pick is before the show comes out by liking Facebook.com slash iFanboy or at iFanboy on Twitter or at, uh, at iFanboy Comics on Instagram, which will have the best of the week in panels, etc. Follow us individually at CS Kilpatrick on Instagram and J.A. Flanning on Instagram and Twitter. I looked at it again, and I won't be there long. So if you have something to say, get it out. 
Subscribe to the YouTube page over at youtube.com slash iFanboy. Say what you will about the terrible name iFanboy, but at least all of these other things have been available for us still. <laughs> like, if it was a better name, then we couldn't find youtube.com slash iFanboy. It would have to be something else. The real iFanboy, something like that. But there we go. Uh, you can keep up to date on old video show re-uploads. Uh, you update these because you're, yeah. you're a good man. This past week, there's a mini about old Marvel ads. That's that's just great. I can tell right now that's a great show. Well, it was your show. I didn't know that when I said it. Well, basically what I <laughs> that said was, was your I like that topic. That was your thing, yeah. Did I do it more than once? I think you did it a couple times. Okay. It was a good bit. The Pick of the Week 100 live show. Holy cow. Is that the Jim Hanley's? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was the first wow. live show we ever did. We recorded it and we put it out as a video show, which was good because, if I recall correctly, the way we recorded it, we fucked up the audio recording. We had two recordings going, a camera audio and our uh-huh. other audio we were going to use for the you know the audio version. I recall something happened to the audio recording, so I had to pull the video uh, audio to use for the sh- to, you know the audio release, and that was not ideal. Can I wax? I know we're at the end, but I just for, for one second. I remember that so well because we thought there would be nobody there. Yeah. But there was a bunch of chairs sort of up in the front and there were there was people and they were full the and standing room. Yeah. Oh man, that makes me feel good when I think about it. I'm just I've been reading uh, I've been reading a book about Bad Religion who is, you know, one of my favorite bands. And in the US they'd go on this tour, this is like in the eighties, and, and there'd be nobody there. And then they would they went to Germany and all of a sudden there's a thousand people there to see them. And they were like, and that was so validating. And I was thinking about it, I was like, yeah, that is a really good feeling because it's really nice to have an audience of people who've come to listen to you and laugh, you know, like in unison at the things you're doing and, and appreciate it. And we get to do that a lot. And that's really cool. Yeah. We, it was the first time we did it live. So we didn't know if people would show. And a lot of people mm-hmm. did, including people that I hadn't seen in years. Someone who I went to elementary school with, someone I went to high school with because they mm-hmm. listened to the show, didn't know it was me. We were in New York City where you were, grew up. But it was, uh, it was fun. Yeah. And every time we've gotten to do that, that was super fun. Yeah. I love that. That's a good feeling. I got Anyway, I gotta, if you want to see. 600, no, 646 episodes ago, what that show looked like, sounded Whew. like, and what we looked like and sounded like, that's over at youtube.com slash iFanboy. And the third one this week was the voicemail show, which we like to do periodically. If you like this show, write us a review or leave a star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps us find an audience. It helps any podcast you listen to find an audience. That's a lot of fun for, for them and for us, and we thank everyone who does that. And even better than that, it's a word of mouth. Tell your friends who read comics, maybe don't listen to podcasts, or thinking about getting into podcasts what's the podcast you like people do it all the time we thank them for that and that's this week's show at least it's finished at least it's over at least we're not doing it again (laughs) there were some technical problems at the beginning we're gonna be honest with you uh (laughs) let's go let's go let's leave i'm josh i'm connor all right thanks very much stay safe out there Around, are you sure? Went for it, but the red light was showing. The red light indicates doors are secure.